Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Justin Guest, an associate professor at George Mason University's SAR School of Policy and Government. Guest is the author of six books, which deal primarily with immigration and demographic change. Today, he is joining me on the show to discuss his most recent work, Majority Minority, which is releasing here on March 22nd from Oxford University Press. Welcome to The Politics Guys, and thanks for joining us, Justin. It's a pleasure, Trey. Thanks for having me over. Well, we always love to get uh, work, and I'll be honest, I am a nerd, and so I love to get books before they come out and then pretend like there was something cool about it. Uh, so I've had a blast reading your uh, uh, reading your book and getting into it. Now, obviously, listeners are not going to have had a chance to do what I've had, and that's to uh, to read the book yet. Uh, so, if you could, for our listeners, if you had to kind of give the the basic takeaway of your book for our listeners, what would that be? What's 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 the the ultimate message of the book for listeners? Well, the book asks the question: How societies respond to great demographic change. And in many ways, uh, that is something that's a question that's lingering over uh, American democracy right now and a lot of other countries that are diversifying very quickly. And in many ways, we are living in the shadow of um, what has been called the majority minority milestone, where the original or, or native ethnic or religious majority loses its numerical advantage to one or more uh, ethnic or religious minorities. And of course, in the United States, what that means is the 2045 milestone that the U.S. Census Bureau has set uh, for when white uh, white people will no longer be um, greater than 50% of the country. And that shadow of that uh, milestone, I think, lingers uh, over the identity politics, the cultural wars of, uh, of the United States and U.S. politics right now. And better understanding um, how other countries have gone through this is really important. Most people don't realize, of course, that the United States is not actually the first country to go through this. Uh, there have actually been um, – it's a rare milestone, but it's not unique. Uh, so I study six other societies that have actually encountered this milestone and study how they've either pivoted towards conflict or greater coexistence. And learning from them, I test a variety of findings uh, to better anticipate our own experience in the American political future. And I, I, you know, as I was reading your book, it was interesting to me the number of times I kept thinking, oh, there's something that's dealing with contemporary politics. Now, you get to that uh, in the end. Now, you take a case study, a qualitative comparison analysis to try to say, well, this is what's going to happen. Because early on, you mentioned in the text, smaller countries, smaller spaces are more likely to have this happen more rapidly than larger countries. But you also do some slices of the cases. So would you at least mention the cases that you go through for our listeners? Sure, sure. I mean, that's the first question on most people's minds is where have they actually gone through something like this before? Where are we going to be learning from? So I focus on a variety of these small countries which have much more fragile demographies than we do um, because they're so much smaller, a big influx of immigrants uh, or big differentials in fertility will really you know, alter the composition. So I focus on two countries that are characterized by what I call suppression, where uh, the majority decides to suppress the minority uh, and basically exclude them or discriminate against them in the course of public policymaking. And that's Bahrain in the Middle East and also Singapore in Southeast Asia. Singapore does it in a much more subtle way, whereas Bahrain is more overt. And then I focus on two other countries that are democracies, but are deeply divided and subject to um, almost like eternal seeming uh, tensions uh, around their politics and, and social lives. And that's Mauritius, uh, which is just off the coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean, and Trinidad and Tobago, the uh, Caribbean island pair in the East Caribbean, just off the coast of Venezuela. And there you have uh, two countries that are split uh, uh, between people of African origin and Indian origin. Uh, although the um, uh, you basically have a, a sort of even number in Trinidad and Tobago, whereas the Indian origin population is larger in Mauritius. And then finally, um, I, I look at two cases that are characterized by what I call reconstitution or redefin redefinition, when the national identity is redefined in light of the change of composition in, in the country's population. And one of those countries is Hawaii, uh, which many people, of course, will be familiar with as a U.S. state. But before it was 
effectively annexed and colonized by the United States government in 1893, Hawaii was its own country, and it was actually a majority-minority country governed by its own monarchy, uh, the Kamehameha dynasty. And so we study Hawaii, and then we also look at New York. And you know, New York is not actually its own country, although many New Yorkers might like to think of themselves as their own country, <laughs> but uh, it's not. However, a, un, until 1881, uh, New York actually got to control who came in and out of its borders. Uh, admissions and, and removals uh, were actually devolved down to the level of the U.S. state. And so uh, until U.S. policy was federalized in 1881, uh, New York had the ability to do that. So it acted like a sovereign state from an immigration and population control perspective. So those are the six uh, countries, and I'm happy to double-click on any of those that you find interesting. Each of them has their own really interesting story. Well, I'll be I'll be transparent about you. The Trinidad and Tobago is the one that I was instantly drawn to. I had a uh, professor as an undergraduate who was from uh, uh, Trinidad and had worked in governmental policy there before he came to Northern Kentucky University uh, uh, to teach. And so I, I was immediately probably drawn to that case to, to the most. I was also interested, though, I, I'll be honest, even as a scholar of politics, I had not really connected the dots about thinking about the devolution of immigration policy and therefore the inclusion of New York. When, when I first saw that in your table of contents, I was, I was a little taken aback. I thought, one of these just doesn't fit. <laughs> yep. uh, but no, I, those were the ones for me that I, I, I was about, you know, kind of immediately getting into. Uh, so now, you know, for your book, I mean, one of the big takeaways appears to me to be that in this idea, as you put it, you know, trying to help the United States see through this transition, you're really talking about a transition of national identity and how we can envision who we are when there is shifts in what the imagination of who we are is. Is that true? That's right. I mean, who we are as a democracy, and, and frankly, as any society, even a non-democracy, is always going to be subject to some degree of the composition of the people. And, you know, it's, it's the we and we the people in the United States. And so as we change as a population, how we conceptualize ourselves is going to necessarily change, too. And so, yeah, I think that this is pretty pivotal um, because I think until now, uh, the United States has, you know, uh, has thought of itself, has conceptualized itself as effectively a, a majority white nation and white, white, the white mainstream um, is is implicitly, subtly, not legally, but uh, although it was once legally, um, the sort of standard of what an American life and, and person is like. And I think that that, you know, the, the majority minority milestone um, basically problematizes that in a way that the civil rights movement and the social justice and racial justice movements today um, cannot possibly um, uh, emphasize enough, which is it actually changes the nature of the population of the country. And so it forces us to reconsider who we are and how we define that we. Yeah, I mean, for students, I often talk about nations in terms of you know, that ima the imagined communities that we have for ourselves, since we can't actually see and touch the edges of them. But what, you, what you're arguing here effectively is, is that as that empirical shift occurs, we're going to be forced to confront that imaginary boundary between what is us and is not us. And, and central to that seems to be, in, in your case, that we need to think about the way that the state can be involved in that process. So would you talk just a little bit about, well, what ought to be the role in the state as we rethink through that nationality? Well, the state is, is, is pivotal, pivotal. But before we even get into the state trade, I think it's also worth you know, emphasizing how maybe counterintuitive it is to focus on the state. Because up until now, when we think about how we grapple with demographic change, almost everyone's going to point you to prejudiced attitudes and mm -hmm. social attitudes, right? And they're going to point to the, the, the toxicity of racism and, and double standards and implicit bias. And they're going to say only with the eradication of those things, are we going to actually be able to make social progress? But what this book is doing is actually saying, you know, yes, obviously th those things are toxic and, and, it's, and, they're, and they are problematic. But if we're going to wait around until they're eradicated, you'll be waiting a really long time. So progress is going to have to come in some other way. And when we look at how other societies have been governed, we see actually pathways towards conflict or away from conflict and towards coexistence. And there are five principal pivots that uh, that really you know 
push us towards greater inclusion or greater exclusion of minority groups or um, other subgroups. And so the first one has to do with ideology. What is a national ideology? What holds us together? Um, In the United States, you might think of capitalism. You might think of the American dream. There's certainly a variety. But what is that? You know, in other countries, it might be socialism or or some kind of authoritarian ideology. But whatever it is, um, it's it's an ideology that can either bring people together or or push us apart. Second, uh, we look at commerce. Commerce can either bring us together or push us apart. Is our commercial system, our, our economic system, does it is it ra- subject to racialized poverty? Uh, do we have segmented labor markets where certain eth- ethnic groups are only allowed into certain trades and, and, and forms of labor? Uh, or actually, is it uh, much more desegregated? Is it something that where everyone can enter and become in- interdependent with one another in the marketplace? Third, you can think about culture. So you can think about um, you know, sports, the arts music, cuisine, you know, food and literature. These are things that bring people together in a very non-political way that give us a sense of what an American is, you know, football, Thanksgiving, uh, hip hop music, you know, all of these things are uniquely American that bring people together. Um, but they can also shred people and, and tear us apart. You think about the controversies over uh, Confederate monuments or, or the controversies over Colin Kaepernick taking a, a knee uh, before NFL football games when national anthem was being played. Fourth, there, the fourth pivot, it relates to the socialization of children. So you think about how people, how, uh, how we educate young people in schools. Do they go to diverse schools or are they segregated uh, by race or religion or, or even partisanship? Um, or um, we can also think about schools as a place for integration, for interacting with, with, with people of different diverse backgrounds. Um, but you can also think about uh, textbook controversy, controversies and curriculum controversies. And, and you look no further than critical race theory as a you know, principal example here. And then finally, the fifth pivot relates to uh, a sense of threat. Uh, is, is our country's sense of threat coming from the exterior of the country? So some people might point to Russia right now or China before that, um, or the coronavirus. That's an external threat as well. Uh, and in which case, it could be a very unifying experience for most Americans. Or is that sense of threat internal? Do people look at the opposing political party or a minority group like Muslims, for instance, uh, as, as a sense of threat, which has happened, of course, in American history and continues to to some degree today? And that's obviously divisive. And so in those five pivots, uh, and just to review, it's ideology, commerce, culture, socialization of youth and education, and, and, and threat. Those five pivots are really how states can govern this majority-minority transition and push us in the direction of coexistence or conflict. Shaping the way we think about the nation through those. So, I mean, one of the one of the kind of the macro level questions I had for you, I think a lot of listeners uh, and, and scholars as well would say, well, isn't nationalism effectively a dying force, right? Liberalism suggests that these kinds of things are going to uh, decrease over time. And you actually address that in the book in part by saying that you thought that, that scholars maybe were too quick effectively to think that the force of national identity would just kind of become a, a less important variable. Talk into that a little bit, please. Sure. I mean, you can't blame scholars of nationalism or globalization to think that nationalism would dissolve in a very global world. I mean, so many of the most important phenomena uh, of, of this era, the last 30 to 40 years, uh, are, are effectively blurring the borders between us. So climate change, climate, you know, rising sea levels, um, you know, uh, contamination, they don't, you know, they disregard borders, you know, lines in the sand. Uh, you think about global migration, um, which literally brings people across borders and connects them in a transnational manner. Um, you, you can think about global commerce uh, and global trade, which connects us with new ideas and goods and services at all times. So it's reasonable for, for it, it was reasonable for a lot of scholars to think, well, this is the end of nationalism. You know, the, the nation is effectively dissolving by, you know, by, in front of our very eyes. Uh, however, what we failed to anticipate, I think, is the way that a the nation actually gives us a, a sort of security blanket, a, a sense of comfort in a world where borders are being dissolved. Uh, The backlash that was the pendulum swinging the other direction uh, was a craving for identity, for control over increasingly uncontrollable global processes. And so I don't think it's that surprising now looking in hindsight, of course, uh, that we saw the reinvigoration of of nationalism and claims for sovereignty 
uh, like you saw in Brexit most recently in the United Kingdom uh, and beyond. So now, you know, you talk about these, the five pivotal moments, and you talk about that surprising idea that maybe state policy can be the the shift and the change for uh, countries that have a, a better experience with this uh, versus a worse, a worse experience. As a matter of fact, you use a path analysis, kind of a, a way of analyzing at what juncture these choices are going to happen. But I think for a lot of our listeners at kind of a, a higher level, and I was curious about this as well, you talk about one of the things that we have that has to happen at that state level is that leaders have been, in your words, failing to evolve the concept of their respective nations. And you don't want to just put that blame on liberal institutions, i.e. democracy, because you think that we can kind of overcome that. I had wondered all the way through about this. You know, you, you come back a time and again about how we're going to have to have states to make the to, to speak into these pivotal change movements. But what's going to get us beyond what you call the frayed political relations that we oftentimes see in liberal democracy? Yeah, it's going to be an enormous challenge, Trey. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Benedict Anderson's, um, you know, uh, con- the constructed nature of, of, mm-hmm. of nations as imagined communities. Um, but in many ways, just as nations were once invented, it is our responsibility now to reinvent the nation as our composition of our population changes. And that is really the challenge before um, not just the state. I don't want to make it seem as if, you know, everything relies on the state. Government is not the solution for everything, and it won't be here either. Um, the state is simply, you know, has the convening power uh, and, and in many cases the bully pulpit to actually um, model the changes that you want to see in the world. But this isn't going to take one leader. It's really going to take a million leaders. It's going to take a variety of people who lead organizations, who lead um, companies and who lead government to recognize that it is in a universal interest to create a sort of criterion uh, that asks before every act we do, is what I'm about to pursue going to bring people together or is it going to drive people apart? Is what we are about to do going to reinforce the social boundaries that, that split us or is it going to actually dissolve those social boundaries and lower them? And I think that, you know, that is the, that is the principal question that all of us must be asking uh, in the course of our lives and, and, and our, you know, both professionally, socially and civically um, going forward. Um, democracy uh, and, you know, bias and, and prejudiced attitudes, you know, these are structures of, of American society, if we're speaking just about the United States right now. Um, and so that is effectively the turf on which change has to take place. Um, you know, it doesn't do us much good lamenting about, you know, the, the troubles with democracy and the troubles um, uh, with, with public attitudes. I, I don't think that we should assume that this, you know, that that change is going to have to, you know, that those things are going to have to precede the change that we need to, to effectively put into um, put into play here. Uh, we have to be able to get over um, uh, these, these various divisions or it can paralyze our society more than it already is. Let me speak into that a little bit more. Because, so for example, as I read the first part of your book, you eventually get to actually tackling Donald Trump uh, and some of those more fervent national American appeals, at least, uh, than later. But I, I kept kind of coming back and wondering. Given the fact that if we accept your your premise that in the short term, uh, not necessarily bringing uh, the, the larger, as you were saying right here in the show, you know, we need to think, well, does this action bring us together and divide us apart? But it seems that in the short run, the dividing us apart has some profound political advantages. Uh, uh, the ability, I mean, again, I look to Donald Trump. I remember him being at the Ocean Center in Central Florida talking about his big, beautiful wall that was going to keep out the Mexicans. Um, and, and, and I think even about today here in, in, my, in the state of Oklahoma, uh, where we have very different views of who ought to be considered part of us from our own uh, 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 senators here in Oklahoma. Um, how, how do we overcome those short-term advantages that you clearly lay out for the longer-term benefits that you get to at the end of the book? So politicians and um and other public officials are inside of democracies are often motivated by short-term electoral thinking. They want to win now, and in a democracy, uh, you're looking for ways to divide society in a way that yields you, the the the, the elected official, um, a majority. 
And, you know, up until recently, those, you know, the, the ways to divide people were largely on policy preferences. But what we're increasingly seeing is a more racialized form of politics, where because of the prominence of identity politics, the two sides see each other as mutually existential threats. And the short-term advantages in these identity in this identity politics context is not to divide people on policy preferences, but to divide people along identity lines. So whether or not they're a racial or an ethnic minority, um, it, it has grown in salience beyond just sort of you know standard public policy attitudes about you know, markets or healthcare or climate change. And of course, those same uh, policy views have now uh, intersected in a way and sort of been mapped onto uh, identity politics as well. And so that's unhealthy for any country because what happens with when you have identity politics is that uh, each group is less willing to lose and more willing to break the rules in order to win. And of course, things only devolve uh, and spiral downwards. Um, the, the long-term thinking is going to have to come from some kind of you know, visionary leadership, but also a, a commitment to the, to the social goal of coexistence and social cohesion. And so much in the way I think that governments and companies and, and civil society organizations have devoted themselves to environmental sustainability over the last 20 to 30 years, we need to devote ourselves to that coexistence, to that national unity framework. Right now, you know, all these organizations regularly ask themselves, what is the effect of my actions on, um, on the climate, on the environment? And we need to ask ourselves the same question, though, as it relates to the social fabric of the country. I, I liked that uh, connection on the one hand I was reading in the book, and you, you make that connection to climate change in, in, the, in the text itself. But at the same time, a cynical part of me said, well, I mean, of course we do that. But have we actually had the meaningful kind of climate conversation that we need to have to mitigate the effects? And, and I think a lot of scholars would say no. So if that is the case, do you really think those would then work in this area, if we're, even if for the existential threat of existence, they don't always work? Can they work for this kind of threat that may, in a different way, not seem nearly as uh, uh, grave as even climate change? Well, I would like to think that, that Americans have, uh, you know, have, have noticed just how shredded uh, our social fabric has become, just how frayed it's become, much of the way they've noticed that you know, the desertification of, of certain forests or rising sea levels or intensifying tropical storms. So I, I do think that there is evidence uh, of a fraying social fabric and a, and a weakening democracy um, that should be alerting people to what they can do. Um, but I also think that looking at climate change and, and, and the progress or lack thereof is really a glass half empty, half full situation. I mean, great progress has been made. Uh, on mitigating the effects of, of climate change. It may not be happening fast enough to actually achieve the goals. And it certainly isn't, in my opinion, but I'm not a climate change scholar. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I do think that it's incontrovertible that the world, uh, particularly the industrialized world, has galvanized itself to do what it can to mitigate um, the deleterious effects on climate change. So I think that, you know, I, I think it is a good example um, even if it has shortcomings of a society reorienting itself to establish sustainability as a criterion for how we run things. Um, it's unfortunate that it hasn't been established widely enough, um, but that doesn't mean the criterion itself isn't working. Okay, fair, fair. Now, I, I want to take a look at one of your cases. Obviously, we can't look at all of your your cases, but it, we, and we so that we can apply it to the United States. But I do want to take a look at Trinidad and Tobago because that that for me is kind of a, a particularly unique one where you're focusing on uh, the carnival as carnival as being one of the uh, the differentiations in your chapter on on mass conflict and talk through that the the Trinidad example uh, case study for listeners so they have a taste of what one of your case studies was like. Sure. So, you know, Trinidad and Tobago uh, was historically a British colony. Before that, uh, it was also governed at some points by the French and, and, and the Spaniards. Um, but uh, but a, as a British colony, it was a, it was a sugar colony. It was uh, it was growing sugar um, as much as uh, the Commonwealth was in, in, in the uh, 18th and, and, and even 19th centuries. Um, and much like uh, the other uh, majority minority cases in the book, um, there was a need for labor to man these plantations and to man the fields. And so initially, you know, that labor was coming from uh, African slaves. 
but when the slaves were emancipated and slavery was abolished in the 1830s, there was a need for labor um, without an appetite from landowners to actually pay people and treat them properly. And the solution came from what was called the Great Experiment that originated actually in one of my other cases, Mauritius. And that Great Experiment was an experiment with indentured servitude. And that is where um, the British government um, recruited labor, mostly from India, but from a, num a number of other states, uh, and, and imported it to their uh, plantation colonies. Um, and in ex instead of actually making people, um, sub being, making people subject to forced labor in the way uh, slaves of African origin were, uh, they actually indentured, uh, they were indentured under a contract uh, where after working without wages for a number of years for a period of time, were then granted uh, either land or some form of payment, um, some form of compensation at the end of it. And those laborers came predominantly from India to Trinidad and Tobago. Now, if you fast forward to independence uh, in, in the mid uh, 20th century, um, Trinidad and Tobago was a majority uh, African origin country. And, um, but steadily, due to a variety of, of demographic trends, the emigration of people of Afro-Caribbean origin, um, higher fertility rates among people of Indo-Trinidadian origin, um, and, uh, and, and, and a variety of, um, uh, of, of some immigration from, from external to, to Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, by 1995, the country reached that majority-minority moment. Uh, and in many ways, it was heralded by the election of the country's first Indian-origin prime minister, Basdeo Pandi. And that really was the sort of wake-up call to Trinidadians, uh, particularly those of African origin, um, that their country was changing and that their country uh, was irreversibly changing. And the politics of that country um, has been effectively racialized ever since and really uh, even before that election uh, in the late 1980s, where you have two political parties, um, not so different from Democrats and Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, except that they are um, predominantly uh, uh, affiliated with the different identity groups. So the PNM, the People's National Movement, is predominantly African origin, and the UNC, the United National Congress, is predominantly Indian origin. And they have traded barbs and, um, and, and, and traded power over the years, mostly a, a product of, of mobilization against, uh, 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 from the opposition period, uh, side. And, um, and, and, and almost any issue, no matter how petty, no matter how small, is subject to these identity politics, and it paralyzes the government from taking great action. Now, the politics of carnival, uh, you know, each of the, the sort of chapters where I do fieldwork in these different countries, um, I, I, I pick, I select something that is, uh, I think, evocative of these majority-minority politics in the contemporary moment, because most of their milestones were historic. So I wanted to look for things that um, really evoked the sort of enduring legacy of uh, the majority minority milestone and carnival is it. Um, carnival is the annual uh, Mardi Gras, um, uh, the the, the pre-Lent festival uh, in in Trinidad and Tobago, leftover you know from the, the French experience, uh, but adopted uh, by the landed elites and then eventually um, by the freed slaves and then eventually by everyone once everyone was a, a, um, uh, an equal member of the population. Um, and really came to be claimed and embraced by the Afro-Caribbean population. And, you know, the chapter gets into it far more deeply than I'll be able to in, in the course oh, of our podcast. Of but, you know, we the Carnival, as much as it is an expression of Afro-Caribbean culture, uh, and it's just enormous, it's just marvelously rich and, 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 and fun and crazy uh, and debaucherous, um, but it, it also demonstrates the cultural hybridity of Trinidad and Tobago as well, um, dominated by uh, soca music. Um, what has emerged are hybridized forms of Trinidadian culture that integrate uh, Indian influence into it with what's called uh, chutney soca, uh, which demonstrates the sort of Indian uh, influence uh, on the music. And so Carnival has always been a sort of stage that acts, uh, uh, that gives people the license to act out and speak freely against authority and, and to share their views about society through the various music and, and calypso poetry that is, uh, that is shared. 
uh, under the sort of veil of bacchanalia. But the the amidst the chaos, people are engaged in fierce dialogue and cultural exchange. And today uh, it is no different than you know 100, 150 years ago when slaves were participating. Uh, or former slaves were participating uh, in the carnival and castigating, you know, the the authority of of, of uh, their former masters and their former landowners. Um, and so it still has this insurrectionist, rebellious nature to it. Um, and instead of you know pushing against colonial authorities and landed aristocracy, people are pushing against each other and um, and and the sort of dominance of Afro Caribbean culture. Uh, and, and Indian uh, and, and Indo Trinidadian um, control over the business sector and, and professional classes. So it, it is just a fascinating, fascinating thing to study. So much bigger than me, but I, I hope that I reflected it well in the book. Oh, I, I, I loved that. To be honest, your your big items that you picked for each of your cases were just very compelling. So, <laughs> I, I, I love that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to drill on this one a little bit because one of the things that ran through my mind as I was looking at this was they have a similar, although obviously different, on the sense that they had slavery as we did in the United States. And so you actually interview uh, uh, view in, individuals taking part of this and you have this conversation about them where it basically comes out. You're talking with uh, Loveless here. Um, and uh, and the re- his response to you is apparently is I'm, I'm picturing him in, in your, you know, he's got his cigarette in and you guys are looking out over the. <laughs> uh, and he says, well, look, the problem is, is that the dialogue in these kind of communities is never going to really be between Africans and Indians because. Indians didn't have to experience slavery. Instead, it was between Africans and Europeans. And so now we're having to kind of figure out what we do in this new space. And that really stuck with me in part because when we talk about the United States and we talk about uh, a majority of minority, you know, it's not as if we have a singular ethnic minority who is completely arising, but one of them has kind of this unique history like uh, uh, the Africans in, in Trinidad and Tobago. And I, I wonder if you saw any parallels there as well, this idea of the, the, some of the difficulty that it is when you deal with slavery as being part of the historic trajectory of that conversation. Oh man, Trey, yeah, this is a huge question. And let me tell you, throughout the book, there are echoes of the American experience. I call them echoes because I don't always call them out. In many ways, I let the reader kind of draw their their own conclusions, particularly when I'm in the cases, um, because in many ways, the cases speak to people in different ways. Just as you kind of grappled onto Trinidad and Tobago, other people will, will grasp, you know, Singapore or, or Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's just a wonderful thing about about books. You know, you 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 we all kind of come into it with our own lens, and, and the author is just sort of leading the conversation. Um, Earl Lovelace is a treasure. He's a national treasure. He is one of Trinidad's most important authors of of, of, no, of fiction of uh, novelists. Um, and uh, just thinking, I can I was closing my eyes. I can bring myself back to when I was sitting on his patio with him. Um, overlooking this endless just jungle in front of us uh, while he takes out a cigarette and absolutely, you know, condemns every question I ask as being, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, conceptually uh, poorly thought out. Um, he's, a, he's an irascible, irascible man and that who, is, who is now in his 80s, um, but a true national treasure. But he's wrong. You know, he's wrong to say that you know, Indians, uh, and, and, or, and by that he means Indo-Trinidadians, exactly. um, could not possibly uh, in, engage in the da- in the dialogue that the Afro-Caribbean community is having, because their dialogue, their business is with the you know the, with British colonialism. Um, because what's so wrong about that is that yes, the experience of slaves of African origin was uniquely theirs, no question about it. But that doesn't mean that Indians. There's no way that Indians could relate. They had rebellions against the British colonists. They were put down. They were in forced labor, uh, and, and they were exploited. Was it the exact same way? No, of course not. But it was a way. It is. It is an entree, a, a gateway point, where in another world, Earl Lovelace could be linking arms with the Indians in their mm-hmm. experience in, in indenture, uh, and saying, "Look, it, it, the struggle wasn't the same, but it was struggle." And in many ways, I think that that propensity to think that each of us is sort of uniquely vulnerable 
um, it, it, it actually infects American politics too. Um, you know, again, that's not to say that one minority group, whether you're black or Latino or Asian American, the, that's not to say that what they have gone through is somehow um, not unique or somehow any more, you know, creates any more vulnerability than the other. The problem is that we're even having that debate at all. Why are we having these debates about who is more vulnerable, about who has had it worse? There is never a winner. And instead, yeah. everyone loses because we talk past each other. And Earl Lovelace, you know, bless his soul, you know, uh, is subject to the same errors, I think. Uh, and, and as a result, Trinidad suffers. As a result, the social fabric of Trinidad frays. And so in the United States, we're part of the same kind of conversation. And it's not just between our minorities. Uh, there are a lot of white working class people who feel like their struggle, like their vulnerabilities are ignored. And again, that's not to suggest that there's some kind of equivalency, but the debate over whether there is equivalency is just completely unproductive. It doesn't bring us together. It only divides us apart. And, and this really connects with my earlier book, The New Minority, uh, which is all about white working class politics and their feelings of marginality, the quintessential insider feeling like they're somehow on the outside. Yes, because of developments. Now, I'll be honest, I have not read that one. I've read some of your other books. Um, so now I, you get, got me something else in my uh, in my reading queue, which is, you know, we always need. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, see, I want I want to continue down this line just a little bit longer because you, you hit on two parts of what I was thinking here. One is, is that a lot of your book is focused, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to make this claim. It seems to be focused on how does the former majority transition properly when we have this demographic change occurring while they're kind of sharing and then uh, co-sharing control with the state. So I want to ask in that then, you know, for example, in Trinidad and Tobago, you have two primary ethnic groups. But in the United States, as you were pointing out, not only do we have a multiplicity of ethnic groups and what we would consider uh, to be the ethnic minority who are also struggling with this identity of who, what are we in relations to these other units inside of this, but you also have it cut up these other ways where do I count as being part of an ethnicity like for, for, for the, working, the working white? So if you could kind of talk into those a little bit, because again, for me at least, one of the things I was wondering was, well, this kind of assumes you have a singular uh, uniform idea of who the we are on the other side of the minority majority is from your book. But that doesn't necessarily seem like it translates into American, uh, the American experience directly. You were starting to talk about it. I'd love for you to take that a little further. Sure. So, you know, Trinidad and Tobago is, is, is a country, yes, where it's basically sort of bifurcated. I mean, there are, there are people there of European origin, some people of Chinese origin, um, but it is primarily uh, people of Indian and African origin. Um, but there are plenty of other cases where you have this multiplicity that you're referring to. So Singapore is predominantly Chinese, but the minority groups are both uh, Indian, usually Tamil in origin, or uh, Malay. Uh, in origin. Um, then you look at Hawaii, where the native group was the native Hawaiians, um, but their minority groups were came from all over the place, China, Japan, the Philippines, even Portugal and Puerto Rico, along with uh, a variety of white people uh, from the United States uh, who were not uh, any kind of underclass or labor class, but nevertheless a minority. So really is not, um, there's not just one way to have a majority-minority milestone, uh, and the other cases certainly reflect it. Um, but Americans, you know, I think can relate to Trinidad and Tobago precisely because it's a democracy. Uh, yes. It is a democracy with very racialized political parties. And here in the United States today, just looking right in this minute, about 83 to 85% of the Republican Party is white. And if you look at uh, the, the predominant sort of ethnic minorities in the country and religious minorities in the country, they you know, overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party, although something might be changing uh, with Latinos, uh, which is the subject of a recent CNN piece I wrote. You know, so, as a matter of fact, I'd love to talk more about that in a minute. That's something we've talked about on the show, especially in Texas border uh, counties in the most recent uh, uh, election, in te uh, primary election in Texas. But I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Continue. No worries. Well, let, let's, let's definitely talk about that. I, I think it's fascinating. It's definitely also in the book. So, you know, we, we have, um, you know, we, we have these different minority groups, much as we see 
um, uh, in these other countries. And what I was saying about uh, our minority groups is that they predominantly support the Democratic Party. So, you know, historically, um, you know, but that hasn't always been true. You know, that's something in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, as recently as 2004, Latinos were almost split uh, by George W. Bush in his election against um, John Kerry in 2004. And, and George W. Bush actually won the Muslim American vote in 2000 before mm-hmm. the September 11th attacks. Uh, his father, George H.W. Bush, won the Asian American vote in 1992. So there's nothing that, you know, that says that in American politics, the Democratic Party is hardwired uh, to get minority votes. Um, although, you know, if you look for farther, far enough back historically, they also, you know, were receiving Irish and other immigrant origin votes in the late 19th century. But, uh, but there's nothing hardwired here. It's, it's something that has happened in our politics uh, in light of culture wars and demographic change. And that allows us to connect, I think, to Trinidad and Tobago in a really interesting and, and profound way. Um, but America also has advantages through this multiplicity. Um, you know, on the one hand, yes, it's not great sometimes because, you know, pan minority identity in the United States is something that is really constructed. You know, we talk about people of color, but, you know, people of color inside of that, there's, it's not a monolithic group and there's not necessarily a lot of solidarity there, uh, even if we see it politically sometimes. Um, and there's a variety of surveys that, you know, show that prejudice can endure. Uh, even amongst um, or intra-minority prejudice can, can mm-hmm. endure. Um, but it is also an advantage. The United States has a number of advantages in light of its multiplicity. Um, we, we, we have so many different groups who have come over so many different decades. It's not like immigration was subject to one big influx like it was in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, like Trinidad and Tobago, we also have a large multi-ethnic, multi-racial population. So about 20% of Trinidad and Tobago today, um, maybe not that high, but close, uh, are, are mixed Indian and uh, African origin marriages and children uh, from those marriages. So that's really, you know, a powerful way of blurring uh, those boundaries uh, that, uh, you know, fear mongering, conflict, uh, people with conflict in mind are trying to um, otherwise trying to divide. Uh, and then also in the United States, we, we have this legacy of immigration such that everyone is effectively touched by it. Even Native Americans, uh, who are truly the indigenous population of the United States, are, are so mixed now that they even are, you know, anyone with Native American uh, blood is likely to also have, you know, some blood from, from immigrant origin people to the United States as well. And so these are advantages in how we conceive of ourselves as a country and as an American uh, identity that other countries do not necessarily have. I, let me again, you, you're such a positive person when you have these spins. So maybe this is just more of my some negativity coming out when you talk about. So, for example, uh, um, interracial marriages, you know, I, I see and one of the things that we can study is kind of the difficulties of persons who live in those third spaces sometimes, especially in the United States. You know, uh, what are what do you get to actually be really, which is always, you know, are you actually, you know, African-American if you are you know, white enough? What, what, what does that count you as? And those are sometimes some really difficult um, uh, 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 concepts, especially in the United States. Later in the book, in the, in the end of the book, you talk about how a lot of those identities, and rightfully so, are really deeply embedded, right? That, you know, that the, that the research has demonstrated that the, especially immigration is this kind of re- deeply in, embedded, prejudice is a deeply embedded concept. And then now it is highly correlative with how you're going to vote. So given those two things, and given we're talking about, how do you continue to make that kind of optimistic spin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, a good, it's a good question. Why, why, are you, uh, why are you bullish on America right now? Yes, um, yes, and, and, yes. And I don't have something, uh, you know, uh, empty to say, you know, the way a politician might say, don't ever count out Americans or anything like that. It's not about, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, nationalism or, uh, you know, or, 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 or ghosts of the American spirit here. Um, no, I, I, I'm bullish because I don't actually think we've tried. I okay. think that we are where we are because we have not even tried to adapt to demographic change. I don't think we have tried to cultivate coexistence. And imagine if we tried. Imagine if it became a policy issue. Imagine if it became something um, that was a, effectively a third form, a third responsibility of government beyond domestic policy and foreign policy, but was the civic fabric. That's not there yet. And so, you know, in many ways, what my book is doing is challenging our country and others that diversify like it 
to actually, you know, take the bull by the horns here uh, and, and to try to leverage the advantages we have as this multi-ethnic country with an immigrant history that is actively intermarrying and producing children of mixed heritage backgrounds to actually use those advantages to create and craft a national identity, a sense of we uh, that is not contingent on your race, ethnicity, or religion, but actually civic in nature. So here, here's going to be my question then, as we get, you know, as, as you come to the end of the book, you talk about the American prospect. You have a whole section on it. And, and, you, and you talk about us being at this critical juncture. And, and you write these words. You say, a far worse scenario in the United States would be if social division drives Americans to embrace illiberal forms of governance that seek to uh, undemocratically entrench the dominance of one population subgroup. And, and you go on to say that we're not likely to be exactly like the cases that you've studied. Uh, but nevertheless, at a minimum, we could see evidence of that uh, occurring right now. I wonder, you know, we, in the wake of there being kind of an early and some, some quarters support for uh, regimes like Russia, even in the face of their invasion of the Ukraine and the United States, do you see any of that there? Or what will be the key that says, okay, we've actually tried and, and therefore we can, we, we're not necessarily on that particular path that you're projecting there is the worst case scenario? Make no mistake. We are at a crossroads. There are countervailing forces in the United States right now, some that are trying to preserve the predominance of the historic majority group and others that are trying to integrate that group into a shared future. And the question is, who will win? The forces of preservation are those that are leaning on more liberal forms of government. You know, the, the, the push to... Um, invalidate votes and suppress voting, the, the push to gerrymander districts so that they're predictable and make many people's votes effectively obsolete. Um, you know, the, the, a variety of Supreme Court cases um, that are also um, uh, marginalizing and in some cases disenfranchising. Uh, these are ways, these are the contortions of societies that are trying to preserve the power of a group that is in population decline. And the problem is that they ring not only illiberal, but in some cases, even authoritarian in nature. Um, and of course, you know, one only needs to think back to the January 6th rebellion mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and the way the Republican Party right now is consumed by its denial of the 2020 results. And so this is, a, this is one set of countervailing factors. So we need to be conscious that the United States is at this pivot point. It is facing this crossroads. And as much as you might see or hear echoes of the United States in you know, anyone's reading of the six cases, um, for good reasons, you also might see uh, the United States' actions in those of others in the worst possible light, you know, in the way that, um, uh, that Trinidad gerrymanders its districts and argues over uh, who should be Im immigrating, in the way that uh, that Creoles, African Creoles and Mauritius are marginalized into racially segregated ghettos and racialized poverty, you know, in the way that Hawaiians um, were consumed, consumed with a sort of affirmative action, uh, but for Native Hawaiians uh, in the era of its majority minority milestone. Um, we see nativism, we see xenophobia, we see exclusivity in every one of the cases that I studied. But we also see a propensity, at least the option, the opportunity for coexistence in each of the six. And I think that in looking at these six, six, these six case studies, I hope that people see uh, a reflection of America um, in all of its goodness and, 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 and also uh, in all of its troubles. Now, I, I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I've got two last questions for you, Justin. And, and the first one is, we do have a lot of listeners who may or may not agree with the underlying normative assumption of your book. And I know as a researcher, we oftentimes put to one side, the you know, we have our empiricism, and then we kind of have our underlying uh, normative value that gives rise to why we study what we study. And, and in part, you argue about, at the end of the book, the value, the, why you ought to value differences. And obviously, Obviously, that, that is kind of undergirding all of why you're doing this research. So for, for those who might be kind of on the, on the cusp and saying, 
okay, one more leftist telling me I ought to value difference. Make that normative case for why we ought to value difference, in your opinion. Oh, I actually don't think it's 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 a normative uh, perspective. So I I, I don't oh. necessarily come into the book that way. And I'm not sure I would even characterize the book as leftist at all. No, quite quite the opposite. I, I think that there is a that 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 valuing ethnic and religious difference, valuing diversity, is actually as nationalist as it gets. I think it is in our national interest to do this. And that's not because I thought this before I wrote the book. Uh, it's because I wrote the thought of this after I wrote the book. Okay. Uh, we have to frame the diversification of the country and our diversity as a virtue. Uh, I think that we have to you know, recognize that if we don't do these things, if we don't find ways to coexist, that we are actually threatening the sustainability, the survival of our nation. Okay. I, I, I'm glad that I asked that question. Then that's not what I thought your answer would be. So I, I want to fin- finish with this. I always, when, when I have researchers on, I always want to ask them, look, you know, if, if all of a sudden we snapped our fingers and, you know, you're the president of the United States or, you know, your par- you, know you were in control of the party and your party controls Congress, what would be your, here's what I would want to get done to make this the best outcome at the end of my four years or my two years or my six years? Because there are so many tactics uh, that one could use, uh, I I won't get into all the various kind of ideas I've schemed up in my head over the last few years. Um, (laughs) And and besides, you know, reading uh, Sun Tzu and the Art of War, uh, we all know that, you know, tactics without strategy is the the noise before uh, defeat. So we need strategy. And the strategy is that the criterion that I mentioned earlier in our in our exchange here today, Trey. So it's really about asking ourselves as government, right? But also, as I said, as businesses, as civil society, as families, is what I'm about to do, the acts that I am pursuing, is it going to bring people together or drive them apart? Is it going to reinforce the boundaries between us or is it actually going to dissolve them? And I think that if we apply that criteria to every government action, we will actually see an improvement in the way we are run. And, you know, for more on this, you know, very nationalist perspective that I mentioned earlier, um, I would point your, your listeners to an op-ed that I published actually just uh, recently with the Washington Post that asks how the left in particular can leverage nationalism, because we see it so commonly on the right of American politics, but there's actually a leftist case as well. And I think that when we think of these things, um, from a nationalist perspective, we realize that actually solving this social challenge, what I believe is the greatest social challenge of the next 20, 30 years, is absolutely critical to our survival as a country. I appreciate that. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for giving your time here and, and letting us go through your book, Majority Minority, here on The Politics Guys. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a, it was basically like a PhD defense. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. Well, I have been interviewing Justin Guest, the book of the uh, the author of the upcoming book Majority Minority, which is coming out here on March twenty second from Oxford University Press. Uh, Justin, uh, is there a place that you would prefer listeners to go when the book comes out to go take a look at it? Do you have a website, or you just prefer them heading right straight over to Oxford? So they can they can certainly purchase it directly from Oxford. They can get it from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop. It's going to be everywhere. Um, if they want more details before they make their purchase, they can they can stock the book uh, by going to justinguest.com. And my last name is spelled G E S T. So justinguest.com. They can also uh, follow me on Twitter at underscore Justin Guest uh, for more details there too. I appreciate that. Justin, thank you again for joining us on The Politics Guys. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed uh, our conversation with Justin Guest and his book, Majority Minority. Uh, Listeners, as you know, I want to thank you all. Uh, If you have a question or a comment or a correction or just a random thought you'd like to share, you can always hit us up at mail at politics.com. You can also uh, see us on Twitter at Politics Guys. For supporters, don't forget that we can continue the conversation on Discord. If you have any other additional things you want to share with us, we'd love to connect with you on our Discord channel. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.